once again. Thank you all for joining us. This is Nuance, and shortly here we will be discussing the Court of Appeals decision requiring New York to redraw its political maps. So here we go again. But of course, I am Mike Scala, joined once again by Jay Carter, also known as Timmy, the hip-hop artist and the chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Jay? Oh, same old, same old. Morning, and the sun is finally out. We actually had a good week. Um, I don't know if you saw, I posted on social media, I went ground golfing a couple of days ago because it had a break in the weather. It was nice and warm. Okay, have you been ground golfing before? Um, you know what? I'd say if I say yes, partially. So I, I went once before and we got to like the third or fourth hole and then it started to rain. Mm -hmm. And so we had to leave. Um, so okay. we didn't get a chance to, to, to really get into it. But this time the, the weather was clear. It was warm not a cloud in the sky and so we got out and we did like you know four different courses so we did like four different rounds so yeah it was good so ground golfing is a, a japanese thing right yeah so it was created in in japan um and it's of course it's based off of golf um but the club is is a little bit bigger um at least the the, the part it's not really a club at the bottom part. It's more like a mallet. Mm. And the ball is probably about mm, a little bit smaller than baseball size, I'd say. I don't know. Something like that, I guess. Uh, and um, it's not, not as hard, but yeah. And so it's designed to be less stressful, easier to play, uh, more relaxing, and played primarily by elderly people here in Japan to, to keep up activity and whatnot. So does the ball stay on the ground? Yeah, it's, it's kind of, it, yeah, it's much, it's much heavier than a, a golf ball. So, you know, even if you, you give it a whack, I mean, you, it can go pretty far, but it's not about to take flight. Okay. Uh, like so a golf like ball. miniature golf kind of. Kind of, but the like I said, the ball's bigger. The the yeah. club is different, but kind of. Um, and at least on the course that I went to, there were eight holes per course, and um, it's not a hole that you put the ball in. There's a flag, mm -hmm. and usually the distance is about. Um, I saw ranges between fifteen, twenty, and uh, what fifteen, twenty five, and fifty meters. Um, okay. so they weren't like really long distances right like, right like you would find on a golf course so 50 meters is about 164 feet yeah yeah um but it was good i mean i enjoyed it, it was good exercise it was you know low impact we got out were able to get some sun do do a lot of walking and just you know have an enjoyable time we were clearly the youngest on the uh on the course because everybody there was elderly um so it was it was interesting but it was uh it was good i had a good time i would i would definitely do it again okay so i figured something in between putting and driving you're not driving though because the ball doesn't take flight but it's longer than any regular putt would be absolutely right yeah so it's kind of that mid thing you know um and i've seen you know it's i've seen older folks here doing it 
Um, they just set up their ball and, and, and clubs in like little park areas and stuff and like do a little game. Um, but I had never seen a course and I didn't realize how, I guess, how popular it is. Um, the reason why I found it is I went up there with a friend because this, this whole course or park area, this whole course was, uh, had a theme of dinosaurs and my friend took me there and they've got all these dinosaur statues, really big statues and this and that. And it's on top of a mountain, really beautiful view. And then attached to that is also this ground golf course. And it's like, okay, well, what is this? Mm. And so that's how I came across it. It was like, okay, well, let's try. Why not? And so that's how that came about. Do you know how long they've had that in Japan? Um, when ground golf started, you know what? I don't know. I don't know, but I know that when we went up there, I've tried a couple of times. Like one time we went up there, it started to rain. We had to leave and there were some people up there. Another time we went up there and apparently there was this massive tournament going on. So no one could play. And it was just like, you know, people from all over came here for this tournament. And I just didn't realize it was that big, but so apparently it's been around you know for a while okay yeah and to check out if you're in japan what if they have that in other places besides japan um i don't know i wouldn't be surprised but um yeah i wouldn't be surprised but yeah it's it's low impact and it's good i can see you know the benefit especially for uh people who don't get out and move a lot Mm. Um, golf itself is very expensive yeah uh, it's good exercise called the walking but it's very expensive whereas this we paid uh, about eight bucks and you could play all day if you wanted okay yeah that's good you know i'm not really into golf i was more believe it or not when i was younger and never really played actual golf but i had clubs and i would go to driving ranges and i would you know practice putting and things like that and i don't think I've ever you had clubs yeah, my grandfather got me a, a set of left-handed golf clubs from a flea market that someone was selling because, you know, I'm a lefty. And so he thought that if I was going to try playing golf, I would obviously be a handicap, no pun intended, playing with standard right-handed clubs. So he thought it was right. cool to get me a set of lefty clubs. So I did have that. But I never went on because I was young. I was a teenager or maybe even younger. I never went on a full golf course and played a whole game. I just would, you know, hit some balls around. But usually... You wouldn't even use your own club. You would just go to a driving range or a putting range or whatever and use theirs. So right. um, I never really got into it. I know that a lot of older people like it. I didn't know it to be very high impact, though. It's, it's, is it hard right. for an older person to swing a golf club? Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's it's not a really high impact sport or game, but it's um, those distances. We're talking what? Some of those, those distances are what, I don't know, 300 plus whatever yeah. long ways away where is an old uh, elderly person might not have the strength to do a long drive like that or gotcha. to talk about the walk just for each hole is incredibly far. So these are much shorter distances. Yeah, you could do golf carts. Yeah. And and golf is, is very popular out here as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but you know, it's it's something that gives an alternative, I suppose, and uh, helps people stay active. Right. Well, there you go. Yeah, let's try to stay active. I feel like I've been too active this month. At least now, getting towards 
Christmas and New Year's, I feel like I should be able to chill at this point because things usually slow down towards the end of December and that hasn't mm. really been the case. And, you know, you should never complain, I guess, when you're busy with work. But I was hoping to have a little bit more of a, a chill December. I did start those CLE videos I was talking about. I got eight hours done. So I'm breaking it up into three days and I'm making a point not to do it back to back to back. Right. I don't want to do two consecutive days of CLEs. And so I did my right. hours yesterday and learned some interesting things, you know, some refreshers. And I've got some more case stuff going on that I was hoping would slow down or stop completely at this point, you know. I like to give myself time. I guess, look, I'm fortunate though, right? Because I talk to my friends and, and they have to work. <laughs> they'll, they'll tell me they're off for Christmas and then they, they're, they're back the next day or something like that. And I'm here saying, I wish I had like two or three weeks. So maybe I'm being greedy. But I know that usually work tends to slow down more than it does this time of year. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess if, if you were you're expecting it to slow down so that you'd have more time to do the the continuing ed right. videos that, that probably I could see how that could be a little bit difficult to navigate, but <laughs> yeah, it's not bad though, because I wasn't waiting to the last week of the month, right? I started relatively early in the month. So I'll be able to find those two extra days to not, mm. I'm not too worried about that. I still was hoping to have a little bit more time because you know what happens. There's an expectation that things slow down in December, and then everyone wants to book you for holiday events, parties, and get-togethers, different things, Santa things, and tree lighting, right? I had a bunch of tree lightings, and I love doing all those, but there is also that expectation that you get to do that because everything else has slowed down, and that's the trade-off, right? You're not doing as much work, but you're making more appearances at these holiday events and functions. Mm. When the events are going on as well as the work, and like you said, the CLE and everything else, then it's just it's a little more uh, activity than I was hoping for this time of year. You know, the good news is I am going to uh, Florida next month. So I guess that'll have to be my vacation. I'll have to wait until until New Year. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Florida. That's, that's your spot. Yeah, I've been going down there around New Year's for the past few years. So I'm going to keep that going. OK, OK. All right. Very nice. So, it's been a minute. It's been a minute since I've been to Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's nice to get out of the cold. I'm not a cold weather person, so when it, winter comes and the snow hits, especially right, <laughs> I like to flock south. I, I'm with you on that. Okay. Definitely with you on that. Well, the question is: Are you with the Court of Appeals? Because they issued a decision just today so it's breaking news here that we have to discuss regarding the legislative maps in new york state we've talked about this a little bit in the past because we've known this process has been going on for quite some time right every 10 right. years the maps have to be redrawn as a result of the census and there is a constitutional obligation to keep them roughly equally populated and so forth. And so as populations change, the maps get redrawn. Now, New York as a state always test this to the legislature, right? And of course, that has been controversial over the years because let's face it, 
who makes up the legislature. Incumbents will be running for re-election. And so obviously they had every incentive to draw those maps in a way that benefited their own re-election chances, right? Absolutely. So in 2014, the voters of New York got together to pass a reform to the process where they would, instead of having the legislature draw the maps, put this to an independent redistricting commission, which is supposed to be you know, bipartisan, nonpartisan, take all those political factors out to the extent possible. I think we've talked about in the past how it's really impossible to remove the politics from this entirely, but you can do reform to try to move it into a better direction. You know, I mean, we, we, could, we could talk about more about that, how I guess in theory you can not have maps drawn by people at all. And of course, if you had an algorithm do it, well, who's programming the algorithm? That's something to think about as well. Uh, There are ways, I guess, to do it strictly on geography, but even that, I think we've talked about, could be argued uh, uh, politically favors certain groups over another. If you're you're splitting up towns, that could be a bad thing. So, you know, there's really no perfect way to do it. But this was intended to be a reform to remove some of the politics from the equation and have it go to an independent commission. Unfortunately, when the independent commission got together for the first time to draw the maps after the 2020 census, the legislature did not approve them. And instead, the legislature ended up drawing its own maps, which were promptly challenged in court and held to be unconstitutional at the time. They said there was too much political influence in a process that the voters of New York had decided they wanted to be less political, right? So the problem was that these lawsuits were being filed and argued and appealed and it kept going on increasingly close to the election. And at a certain point, you needed maps in place to have an election, right? And as we know, you can't just put a map in place on election day, right? Because you got a petition. You have to give people time to campaign. You have to know who's a voter, who's not. I mean, you have to have this in order months before, ideally, right? I mean, at least you really want to give people more time, especially if you're looking at giving people the chance to run for office, because people may not realize it takes a lot, especially if you aren't an established candidate, right? If you're coming in and you want to run for office, you've got to build up uh, a lot of support, a big network. I mean, hopefully you would have done some of those things before you decided to run for office, but just getting that infrastructure, that campaign infrastructure together, the money you have to you have to raise. Organizational. Organization, your volunteers, uh, when you petition, you have to know where the lines are, but even before that, right? It's a big process and mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes into it and it's really unfair to spring these maps on potential candidates last minute when it's really too late in the game for someone to to get in right it's one thing i mean you know at this point we have more of that organization because we've done it before we've kind of built that up over the years and so as handicapped as we would be we would be in a slightly better position than someone new coming in who never did it before right and obviously who benefits the most from this the incumbents and the people who have that institutional support right absolutely that established base already so so that's you know a big problem that it's happening so soon so what ended up happening last time for for those who may have forgotten the courts basically said yes the maps were unconstitutional they were too gerrymandered too much political influence over them however 
uh, it's too late now for the independent commission to go back to the drawing board and start the process all over again, because that is a big process. It's supposed to be public input and the legislature has to weigh in on it and all these different things. So we ended up with temporary maps, right? That were, right. It, was, it was what we had for the last election, but the understanding was that they would need to be redrawn again the correct way, in a constitutional way, right? And so this court case now went all the way up to the Court of Appeals because the Republicans were trying to keep the maps the way that they were. They were saying it was too late to change them. And Democrats were saying that the process had to play itself out. So the Court of Appeals decided today that the maps as we knew they were unconstitutional and now it's not like there's not enough time to redraw them for the 24 elections they need to be redrawn so we're seeing the congressional maps and the legislative maps in new york state redrawn by the independent redistricting commission once again and it does have to go back to the legislature to be approved so we're hoping that the same issues don't arise that came up last time I and mean, hopefully a lesson was learned from all this right because last time as we said the legislature didn't approve the maps that were proposed by the commission so we're hoping that that doesn't happen again and it's much smoother this time around i mean maybe that's optimistic i don't know we'll see where it goes but in any event, we need be, do you think it will be though like well this can't be the first time last time don't forget this is the first time this all played out right because in 2014 the state enacted the independent commission so the 2020 census was the first census and it's the first uh, time that this right was actually put into place and so there was a bit of a learning curve there and i think there was an expectation that they would get away with the process that, that whatever they did would hold up Right. Because essentially what they did was they rejected the independent commission and said, we're going to redraw it anyway, as we've always done. And the court, right. said, no, the, the voters wanted this independent commission to do the maps. So right. hopefully that was a lesson learned, because if they repeat the same thing, it'll get challenged. And we see the Court of Appeals now already has set the precedent on this, that the independent right. commission does have to do this for it to be constitutional. Right. So well, I think, you know, in in. You know, it makes it you know difficult going into it and having these things kind of kind of last minute. Um, but having the, I think the idea of having an independent council do the maps is a good one. I think it's a good move um, and something that was probably overdue. Do you think though that the state legislature should have the authority to approve or reject these maps? Because what we've mm. seen effectively is that if they get maps they don't like, they're just saying no and. Right. You know, with not, that, basically leave the power in their hands, right? If they can just veto right. the map, now we're kind of back to where we started, which is right, right. The map, right? It's like <laughs> I like right. that. I don't like that one. I don't like that one. Keep doing it until you give me something I like. So, yeah. right, is that the way to do it? Yeah, that that's kind of an issue. I think if it's an independent group, then you know they shouldn't. They should. The map should stand that way. But then you also got to wonder. Is there going to be bias in that independent group and in how they draw the maps and in who who checks their work, so to speak? Because right. ultimately it's all political and the people in that independent group company or whatever have their own political affiliations and beliefs. So, you know, I say this, listen, why, you know, we could do AI, let AI do it. Goodness. You know, it's AI. 
all they got to do is feed in the data from the the census and mm-hmm. say we have to keep this balanced number of residents in all areas draw the maps and boom it'll spit that out yeah i mean you know we talked about before trying to reform that whole process and what's the best way to do it there are valid interests in keeping voting blocks together when you start talking about for example minority communities in Richmond hill in queens we've seen this notoriously for a long time where that neighborhood was cut up into several i know when i say several i mean like seven or eight assembly districts where there was a very strong and is a very strong south asian block in that community but they never saw representation from that community in the assembly because of the way that it was carved up and if you start using ai or if you go strictly by Ge- you know geography like let's say you say we're just going to count people somehow from east to west and we're just going to go and as soon as you hit that number boom that's that's your district and just go and try to make as as clean and even shapes as you possibly can that might look good on paper but what are you doing demographically and the supreme court has said that there is a valid interest in maintaining the integrity of some of these voting blocks and not carving them up, right? Because that in itself, even in an inadvertent way, could amount to gerrymandering if it's done strictly by a machine or you know carved up into nice lines that look good on a map, but not so much when it comes to people. It looks like we lost Jay. So hopefully Jay will be logging back on here in a second. In the meantime, I've got a quote from the case that I wanted to bring up because a judge, well, the judges, I should say, on the Court of Appeals do not find it persuasive that the maps don't need to be redrawn, right? The argument against it was that too much time had passed. And look, I understand that from a practical point of view, it is a bit much, as we alluded to earlier, to keep redrawing it and to basically keep the state in a state of not knowing, right? In a state of confusion, in a sense, where these maps are so volatile and so ever-changing and nothing is stable. And then you've got incumbents even not knowing whether they're incumbents, much less the challengers, not knowing you know, who, who could potentially line up to challenge someone. You don't know if you don't if your district is going to be rejoined again. So I understand that point of it. But I think the larger point is that the constitutionality must be preserved. And we're not now at a point where it's too soon. It is an inconvenience. I get that. And, you know, it's a bit of a headache. But that constitutional interest should be preserved at the end of the day. And so this quote here, if any case, is the maps put in place, especially the congressional map, defy the national trend of increasingly partisan districts. Neither petitioners nor the majority have articulated any legitimate interest, let alone a violation of law that requires such maps to be replaced at this stage. So hold on a second. It looks like Jay is trying to come back on. So this decision that came out was a 61 page decision. Looks like, okay, yeah, that was the dissent. Okay, so that's why that quote that I had just read was talking about 
that there was an increased trend towards more partisanship in the maps, and there was no reason why, in the dissenter's opinion, those maps had to be re were redrawn at this point. But the majority opinion is stating that the Constitution does take precedence at this point, as Jay logs back on. The majority is saying that the Constitution needs to be upheld and the will of the voters, which is now enshrined in New York State's Constitution, must be upheld. And so the maps need to be withdrawn, withdrawn, I guess, withdrawn and redrawn, even if it is a headache. It looks like Jay is back. I am back. I don't know what happened. Uh, all of a sudden, just everything just went black. I, I don't know what happened there. So. Uh, I guess that symbolizes what's going to happen to these legislative maps. Uh, well, I hope not. Um, well, the ones that were there on a temporary basis. I just read a quote from the decision, which actually came from a dissenting judge <laughs> talking about there was no reason why the maps had to be redrawn again. He said that there has been a trend of increased partisanship in the process, and the maps basically look like the maps in any other state. They're fine. But that wasn't the majority opinion on this, right? The majority was that the Constitution does mandate that the independent commission draws these maps right because the people of new york voted for it and that became a shrine of state constitution now i think it's interesting to know what what kind of pressure it puts or what kind of situation it puts candidates in right people running for an office and the maps aren't finished yet right right well when we dealt with that in 2012, we were petitioning right. when Absolutely. the maps weren't done yet. And we had to think to ourselves, well, we're pretty sure this area will stay in the district. Let's focus on this. We don't know about these other areas. And yeah, I mean, immediately, right off the bat, number one, you're taking a chance. You're just guessing, guesstimating. But also, it deprives you now of the opportunity to go and start campaigning to these other voters. Right. Right. So the maps come out and a whole new chunk is drawn in. And you're like, wow. I didn't even have a chance to, to introduce myself to these voters. And of course, when you have that kind of system, yes, on the one hand, everyone is disadvantaged in that way, but we know that that has the effect of benefiting the powerful, right? The incumbents, the ones with the machine, because they can put a campaign together quicker and they already have that base that they're drawing from. So they have a head start in a sense, whereas everyone else is trying to play catch up. So yeah, maybe it's a new, uh, you know, area for them also, but they've got their solid block and they've got more resources that they can immediately start pouring into it. And everyone else is really trying to play catch up now. Right. Right. Yeah. I was going to mention that. Yeah. That, that we kind of ran into a situation like this, um, in the 2012 one, um, at the same time. Thing, okay. Again, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was so, so I'm saying, all right, so there is a difference now, legally speaking between right. the congressional districts and the state legislative districts in a sense that constitutionally, if you're running for Congress, you only have to live in the state where your district is. And so right. if you're an incumbent, or even if you were running on, and we've seen this by the way, with some well-known candidates who ended up winning, they district shop, that happens a lot for Congress. And we, we saw it even last time where some, some incumbents decided running against each other and they weren't even from that area, but they thought maybe that demographically would be a good seat for them to run for or whatever. So for Congress, as long as you live in New York or the state where your district is, in this case, it's going to be New York, you're fine legally. Now, politically, it could be a problem because people will say you're running in a seat for a seat that you don't even live in. You could even vote for yourself in this election and yet you're running as a candidate. That says something, right? Right. That does raise an issue potentially. But legally speaking, 
No. So you might see the congressional maps redrawn and Congress members say, I'm still running for re-election in this new district, even though I don't live here anymore. Right. And maybe they'll decide to move later on or maybe not. Maybe it depends on whether they win the election or what have you. Uh, you know, the difference is in the state seats, there is a requirement. Now, it's relaxed during redistricting years, but nonetheless, there is a requirement that candidates live in the district that they're running in, right? So that's different from the federal, different from Congress. But if you're running for a state seat in New York, you do have to live in that district. And so you could be faced with a situation where you're drawn out of your district, either as an incumbent or a challenger. If you don't live there anymore, well, then you can't represent that district. And mm. so, yeah, they can move as well, or you know, if not, they wouldn't be able to legally run anymore. Whereas for Congress, you could run anywhere. You know, you, you can sit in Long Island and run for Congress upstate if you want. You can't do that. Right. So right. that is a, a legal consideration that goes into this as well. And what what about how about you know, I mean, because this this affects not just the politicians running, but also the people voting. And you know, like who are they? going to follow who are they going to read up on to to you know educate themselves about like they won't know who their their candidates are yeah yeah and it's confusing right it's confusing you know let's say you just found out who your senator was your assembly member and then it changes and then you know oh that's interesting and then you're learning about it now sometimes it changes and then it changes again and well i thought it was i thought it was that one it's that one i'll back to that one and you're just confused and you know, most people, they're living very busy lives and not paying attention to the nitty gritty of, of local politics. And so that actually might end up disenfranchising someone to, to not even vote or to say, you know what, this is just too much of a mess for me to get involved in and just kind of check out mentally. Right. I mean, from a practical standpoint, you might not know whose office to go to. Now, hopefully that would be corrected by a phone call. Right. If you, if you call the wrong member, they might be like, oh, I'm sorry, I was redistricted. Here's your new one. But you can see how this could have negative effects on people because it's a mess, right? And we want, I think, our system to be cleaner to encourage more people to participate in it and not check out. Right, right. Yeah. And and not feel like they're lost in it as well. Right. Yeah. So. And this is, you know, it's a mess. It's a headache, right? And I'm an election lawyer. I do this as my job. And it's still confusing. And it's still... A headache. It's still a mess, right? It's, it's not what we want to see. Uh, you know, I know some election lawyers maybe got <laughs> got paid to do these cases and good for them, but uh, it's not good for the system. You know, I'm all... and I think yeah. it looked bad. You know, because this is news. New York Times, Daily News, they're all reporting it. Anyone looking at this from outside is thinking New York can't get it together. But I mean, doesn't. Uh... Other places have to redraw their their maps as well. What make what sets this apart from other places? The fact that New York passed that independent redistricting commission and it did its job for the first time, and the state legislature rejected its proposals. Hmm. So yeah, it sends us kind of a, like you said, it sends it kind of back to square one, so to speak. Like you yeah. know. Well, you, so. Now, these maps will be, you know, once they are finalized and done in a constitutional way, right, that passes muster in the courts and everyone is happy with them, they will be in place until the 2032 elections. So, so they want to at least won't have this headache for a while. Right, right. You know, and hopefully, so why did it? 
what 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 confused like i don't know confuses is i always wonder is why is it run up to the limit to the time you know i mean i understand they, they created the maps and then the court rejected so they have to go back but you know you knew the time was coming up why why wasn't this handled well, few, you know earlier a few years earlier like well it can't be a few years earlier because they have to wait until the census results come out and so the right. The maps had to be re redrawn in 2022, last year. So we were waiting. Was that when the last census was? 2020? 2020. But then the results come out. I think the following year, and then the and then the um, commission has to convene. There has to be a public input period. They've got to do the whole oh, okay. process that they go through. And so there was a schedule. There was a timeline where they had to finish. I believe they were supposed to propose maps February of 22. If I'm not mistaken, we got maybe into April around that time when the maps came out. Some, some, mm -hmm. something you know like that but it was early last year and don't forget if the primaries are june let's say the right. petition period is you know march into april and so basically they were pushed right up to the petitioning period right. um, supposed to be proposed a few months prior but right uh, you know that's you know a small delay you can see pushes it right into the petitioning period and then what happens is people start filing lawsuits and then it gets tied up to court in court and the court of appeals is the highest court in new york so you start at the trial level right the state supreme court you argue that then it gets appealed to the appellate division you argue that then it gets appealed to the court of appeals you argue that so that goes on that can make it go on for more weeks at least um now you're talking very close to not, you know, you're beyond the petitioning period and you're close to election day. So what do you do? And that was a whole mess that we encountered last year where petitioning had already happened and the lines were thrown out. And so there was this ruling that if you had petitioned successfully for the ballot and your district was thrown out, you could still get on the ballot automatically in that same county without having to petition again. But if you didn't, get on the ballot for whatever reason, either you were thrown off the ballot or you never even petitioned for that for that seat, then you had the chance to petition again, right? So it was this whole mess where some people had already petitioned in the beginning period, some were petitioning again in the second period. Um, and so that was a way to try to make the process easier, I guess, on the people who had already done the petition. Because don't forget, it's also money. To, to yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of money that you're spending. It's not just your time. It's not just an inconvenience. You know, you're, you're setting yeah, yeah. back by doing that. So. And that was the thing. I had to file myself. You know, I had to file a form. It was just a one-page form with the Board of Elections saying my candidate petitioned and made the ballot for this district during the initial petitioning period, but that district was was redrawn in a time since, and the candidate is now declaring for this new seat, right? Right. Which was the same general seat that they were going for in the first place, but it's not technically the same seat anymore because it's a new district, right? So technically, it is a whole new district because the lines were redrawn. So, right. you know, that that was a thing. And now we're starting over again with the, with new maps. And um, there is enough time now, though. Right. So to your question, now is when they're starting this process over. Those elections don't happen until next year. And right. I mean, not a whole lot of time because we're at the end of the year already. But if the primary again is in June, the petition starts in a few months. I think at this time they're not doing the public input period because they're trying to make the process quicker. And so, you know, hopefully these maps will be finalized now by February, which is well before the petitioning period. 
and what we said. But again, it is still close, right? I mean, you know, this is a right. process and the process does take time. And even if you do everything perfectly, it is pushing its nose up against that petitioning period. And it right. is a bit of a, a handicap, I would say, to people, right? Because you don't know if, if, if you're just looking like, oh, yeah, I might run for office. Uh, okay, good luck. There are no districts right now. So where are you running? Yeah. Where, where, where are you going to petition? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Where are you putting your operation together? Yeah. Well, a big question mark. Whereas if you've been in office, if you have that, that, that infrastructure in place, it's not as much of an inconvenience on you because you can get that ball rolling immediately. Yeah. 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 So, well, at least, at least uh, for the next 10 years after this is done, the, it'll be uh, as it should be until it happens again. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> hopefully there's a learning process and we get it right. You know, speaking of learning, I was actually a little embarrassed. I watched the video from last week back, and I think I confused myself about the special elections in New York because if you look at all the media coverage on it, they talk about how the parties pick their candidates, and it's just one-on-one, -on -one, Democrat versus Republican. However, we should make clear that there is a mechanism for an independent candidate to get on the ballot in that special election, and the other parties who are not Democrats or Republicans also get to pick their candidates in a similar fashion as the major parties. However, what we do see in practice most often is that those minor parties cross endorse the major party candidates. So the conservative party would normally pick the Republican candidate. The Working Families Party would normally pick the Democratic candidate because it, it for all intents and purposes, is that one-on-one, -on -one, right? You know it's either going to be the Democrat or the Republican who's going to win. And so the small parties may not want to play spoiler. Maybe they do want to play spoiler. Right? That's, a, that's a possibility. But if they want uh, someone who's kind of like-minded as them to win right. they're probably gonna pick that major party candidate to consolidate that vote right so it is what you get i wanted to be the accurate and say legally speaking right as a legend attorney yes there is a process for other players to get involved in this but what you do see as a practical matter is the parties just each picking a candidate and they go one-on-one -on -one, head to head right right and that's that's um it's good to know and good to bring up as a good segue into the results of last week's poll yeah yeah uh, so i see what you did there i see what you let's, did let's do it <laughs> um so yeah we had the the poll last week and um it was centered around this exact topic and the poll question that we had um was in regards to party leaders picking the candidates so we we asked do you believe that party leaders uh as opposed to voters should continue to nominate candidates for special elections uh, and this is kind of kicked off uh, by the situation that new york is facing right now with george santos being expelled expelled from congress and kathy hochul governor calling um for the special election so the results here was interesting i put um three choices this time yes no and it depends because i think there's you know room for for nuance and situations there and so we got 29 percent yes they should continue 41 percent no and in 29 percent it depends hmm. now it depends on what did the comments say that people did leave several comments here so we got a couple, um, well, one person just said, yes, period. Uh, they should, should do it. The voters um, should do it or the party should do it? The party should continue to do it. Okay. Um, 
Let's see. Someone said it's fine in this situation because it's extremely rare. It happened once six times in 250 years. In other situations, no, there should be a primary election. I think they're talking. I think they're talking about in in this specific case with Santos, where uh, a member of Congress was kicked out. Gotcha. Yeah. Instead of situations where a Congress member resigned in the middle of their term, for example. Right. Like this person didn't take that into uh, into account. Um, Someone did correct them on that, but that was kind of where that point came up. Um, And so other people. Yeah, you know, they were talking about party leaders. Um, someone said if if the remainder of the term is a number of months, they don't have a problem with party leaders picking a replacement candidate. That's an interesting point too, because that you know if it's very short term, if it's a, a long term and a car a party is picking it, maybe that person would have more chance to influence things. Um, if they're longer, have longer time in office. You're saying if it's a number of months until the next election, right? Then party leaders can pick because they don't think that they're going to be established enough to really matter at that point. Perhaps, yeah, yeah. Um, someone else think though that as soon as you have an incumbent, right, it makes a difference. I understand it makes right. more of a difference, right, as time goes on because then they get more entrenched and they get more known themselves in their own right. But in terms right. of the way voters, especially in a primary, think about that. When it's an open seat, it's up in the air, you know, and voters don't feel pressured to go in a certain way necessarily. I mean, maybe there are certain interests weighing on them, but generally right. speaking, it's an open seat and, it's, you know, it's like a jump ball in a sense. But once there is an incumbent, then you have to give the voter reason to go against that incumbent. I think they're going right. to default to the incumbent unless given a reason to go against them. So I think it does right. create a major advantage immediately. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, this other person commented that uh, they agree, I guess, for special elections only. And their their reasoning was that filling a vacancy quickly is more is important for constituents to have continued representation. Um, having a primary election to select candidates for a general special election would take too long and be too expensive for the state, especially for an interim term. What about having a nonpartisan election like they do in New York City? I don't, uh, didn't mention that there. Because that is, yeah. as I mentioned, how New York City does it for a city council seat, let's say. Mm. There is a special election in that case, and someone leaves in the middle of the term. But it's nonpartisan. And so you don't run as a Democrat or a Republican, you make up your own party name. And what happens is you get all the candidates in the same pool. Now that has its pros and cons also, right? Because you right. Get votes getting split potentially. And that can work in either direction, right? That could benefit a Democrat or Republican depending on the makeup of the race. But you do see that, right? For example, we saw it here at our part of Queens back in 2009 where most of the candidates running in that special election for city council were Democrats. You had one main Republican candidate who was able to win a pretty convincing win because that Democratic vote was split and Republican vote wasn't. And so that is what you get when you have that nonpartisan election. And I don't think a lot of people think about that because it is a popular idea on paper. People say, oh man, that's great. We should have more nonpartisan elections to take the partisanship out of it, right? So we're less politically influenced in these things. But in a sense, you end up maybe becoming more partisan, more politically influenced 
by doing that because of the way that the vote splits, right? Because it really right. handicaps it potentially. Now, the caveat to that is it isn't inherent in the system because it isn't like the system mandates five Democrats and one Republican on the ballot. You know, right. Maybe there should be a more coordinated effort amongst the candidates to ensure that doesn't happen. I don't know. But the result of that often is, especially in a place like New York City, let's be honest, where there are more Democrats than Republicans, what you'll end up getting is more Democratic activity, right? So you're more likely to see more Democratic candidates than Republicans. If the Republican Party is small, it's easier for them to get together and say, we're going to just focus on this one candidate to be able to win this, because normally we don't win because we're outnumbered. But look, we have right. a chance now because there are five Democrats running for the seat. If we put one person up, now we have a, that five to one edge built in, right? And so you do get those factors too. I think it's just another example of how even when you try to take the politics out of it, sometimes it has the inadvertent effect of making it even more political. Right, right. Uh, now there's a comment here that kind of um, spoke to your point. And they said that I think strengthening our democratic process with voters making the selection is worth the trade of a few extra months of primaries. And since that choice can have a strong incumbency advantage for the next general, there is far more at stake than district representation for that two to four months of a primary. So we brought up that same idea about that incumbency advantage for whoever does get in. So, but he's saying, take the time to basically run a, a a longer campaign to uh, election to get someone in at that point. Right. Get someone who actually had the benefit of going to the people and right. people have the benefit of choosing their candidate carefully and not yeah. just being forced with these options that they might not want. You know, right. we also mentioned last week, I think, uh, was it last week? Uh, at some point we talked about the idea that you know, sometimes you'll have a vacant seat, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people aren't being served. Now, maybe they're not being served to the level that you would want them to be, but you often still do have staff in there. So people don't realize that if the mm. politician is gone, if there's no head of the office, right, there's no member of that legislature in that district, the central body of the legislature can still staff those offices. And so they're still providing constituent services. If you call that office, you know, it won't be congressman whoever's office it'll just be district whatever and um, you know in this case it's three right district three and um, those staffers can still do constituent work now mm. you know it's not as as effective as you would like it to be and there's no real boss there's no real head of the operation and so right. maybe it's a little scattered and and you know not the way you would like it to be but it's something it's not like the people right. there's still someone there yeah right someone's going to answer that phone which is is good now and and good for people to know so but interesting uh results here um you know i guess this person is opposed to party leaders uh, he said if we could trust the party leaders i'd be inclined to allow them to choose a candidate sadly sadly i do not see them as making the choice that they feel will serve our interests above parties politically ca calculated interests yeah and and I think a lot of people probably feel that way. Right, right. And we could have a whole discussion also about the county committee and the state committee and the roles that they play because you get people elected and oftentimes appointed even to these seats. You know, I served on the Queens County Democratic Committee myself. And people ask, well, what do they do? What is the purpose of that? I mean, that is a big part of the role when there's a vacancy, right? Like if there was a vacancy for assembly in our district, the county committee would vote on the candidate 
So it isn't just that one person who's the head of the party, you know, not laterally deciding, at least on paper, right? But we know what often happens is they have an oversized role in the process. And if they put someone the nomination, all of their supporters in the room are going to echo their wishes. And don't forget, these are often made up of people appointed by the district leaders and by the heads, you know, even people above them. I mean, you can call the county committee the heads of the party, but there's a hierarchy there, right? There are people even higher on the list than them who do have more influence. And so that's something we can talk about. There was a very famous case. In fact, we might be able to get this guy on at some point as a guest. Uh, there was someone, I won't go into too much detail now, but a few years ago, there was a candidate for a seat in Manhattan and the, the district had Manhattan and some of Brooklyn in it, but they did such a good job. They were an outsider candidate, but they did such a good job getting county committee members on board with their candidacy that they actually won the vote when the party voted on who was going to be their choice for the special election. This mm. outsider candidate won the vote by doing such a good job with the county committee. I think he even had people elected to the county committee himself, but basically he he won enough influence organically in those rooms to get the vote. But he was overridden by the party bosses who basically uh, finagled the rules, let's say. And I think it was you know something like, well, this district has so much of Manhattan and so much of Brooklyn. And so we're going to say that, you know, Manhattan gets gets more of a vote than Brooklyn does or, you know, whatever they, 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 they right. you know, they finesse the rules enough to override his where, winning at fair and square really in, in that room, which kind right. of uh, led to a lot of people talking about how the county committees don't have the power that they even should, right? That's kind of a farce right. when you, you just, <laughs> this guy can go in and get these hundreds of people and do such a great job, get all these people on board with this campaign and it not mattering at the end of the day anyway. Right, right. And that, that would, you know, disillusion people as well and, and feed into that idea that the process doesn't really work for people or there's nothing that they can do to matter because people are going to pull strings uh, if they can. Yeah. You know, and a lot yeah. of these organizations, you get both of them, the Democrat and the Republicans are huge, massive organizations and are going to do what they do to continue right. to right. exist and perpetuate you know their party right we see variations of that at the national level with these conventions oh, yeah. right? super delegates and the delegate system and how yeah. not as fair yeah. as people would like it to be you know it was something like that like let's say this guy got 60 percent of the vote but they were like all right but we're gonna weigh it so that you know this borough it counts more than that borough and so when we, when you do right. that formula then you, you technically lose by five percent you know whatever so right that stuff unfortunately does happen and i think that's also a re reminder that these parties are essentially private organizations, you know, right. We've talked about this also, right? The idea that when you go and vote in a primary, even you feel like you're voting for a candidate in an actual election, but you're really choosing whom that party is putting up in that election right. and being a private organization. Now, of course, there are rules and laws that try to govern it. But generally speaking, yes, I think we have to keep that in mind that these are right. basically clubs and they get to do things that we don't often like right but they can get away with it because they're clubs it's not, it's not the same as voting in a general election right and i think i think it's glossed over quite a bit people don't actually realize that quite a bit that yeah like this the primary is not really the the thing that you think you're voting for you you're yeah. voting for this group's part right so that's that's a little different here now there's a um um something in here one of the comments here that i wanted to get your um opinion on and he brought up the same point that you brought up earlier uh, he says the biggest problem with this 
undemocratic selection process is that whoever the party selects would have the advantage of incumbency in the general election. Prohibiting the interim office holder from running in the general would solve that problem. What do you think about that? So you're having an election to put someone in there explicitly on a temporary basis. Explicitly on a temporary basis. Is that, that means kind of a waste of money too? I mean, because it is very costly to hold these elections. It well, but happen. when the election comes back around, they're going to have to run an election to to re-up, basically. So this is, you're in there for that term so that the people have representation. And then when the election comes around, they're starting fresh and new people have to come in. But then why even do that first round? Because someone has to be there in that to fill that seat during the time. Doesn't have to be, you know. It seems like that would be uh, a violation, though, to say that someone is not allowed to run again for the seat. Mm, interesting. They violate their their right to to yeah. run. And also, the voters' right to vote. But I mean, unless you put that in, I don't even know if that could be a law. Could that have to be a constitutional requirement? Maybe. Because I'm thinking about term limits. I'm thinking, especially at the congressional level, I'm thinking of mm. the. I guess that could be done with federal legislation to make that so that. But you would, you, you kind of feel like you're restricting the voters' rights by doing that, aren't you? By saying that you're not allowed to vote for that person again. Right. Uh, yeah. Or that person just couldn't come back in. Um, yeah. It's it's something to think about, and, and I think it, it also it, it also kind of goes against the idea of having stability right you're creating more stability uh, instability now you're guaranteeing another short turnover um yeah what would be the point what would be the point of that i mean and here's the thing also when it comes to, to take away the advantage of incumbency is is one of the main points the thing is this though when it comes to congress seniority is important in terms of getting things done and so you're actually hurting the people of that district by saying we're going to put someone in there for a year you took out Santos. He was there for a year, right, with 11 months. And then yeah. you're putting in someone else for a short term. And then you're guaranteeing to put someone else in there again. What that's saying is that that district is never going to get the representation that it needs, uh, at least not anytime soon, because you're guaranteeing more turnover. You know, you want someone in there long term, because the longer someone is in there, the more they can get done and the more they can deliver for their district. Yeah. Um so it's, but it's, you know, it's something to think about. I do think I agree that it could be, uh, at least at the very least, unfair to the person who gets in. But as someone did bring up, um, that that would potentially limit the pool of people willing to fill that role. Right. That's like what if you know. You're having a temporary election, and so you're spending all this money to hold an election on a placeholder candidate. That doesn't seem right, even for the people that you're asking to come out and vote. And right. It isn't going to be your top tier candidates, let's be honest. Right. And, and I mean, because people who want to want to or envision themselves as, as a longer term seat holder are not going to try to go for this because they won't be eligible. And what are you going to get done? And it's let's say you're that person. You get elected. Right. You know, you're only in there for a very short amount of time. What are you going to get done in those months? You're right. just learning the process of how to be a Congress member, how it all works. And you've got no juice. You're just meeting your colleagues. And, and why would they take you seriously knowing you're out the door? If you're proposing something, uh, who, right, cares? Right. Hey, who cares about her? That They're gone in a few months. You right, know, right. Really, what kind of influence would you be able to have in that body? 
as someone who you know is only going to be there and, and out the door right away. I mean, that that's that's very true. Um, yeah, it's, it's very true. I was going to say at the same time, you could say the same thing about representatives who are only in office for two years. You're like, well, we don't know if you're going to be here after the next election or not. You know, right. You don't know if they are, but but they all they suffer from the same thing. If it seems like they're probably going to lose, if right. their district is safe, especially if they keep winning re-election, then people take them more seriously. Right. I mean, right, right. all the lame duck, even when it comes to a president's second term. Right. Right. Their agenda doesn't get taken quite as seriously because they're almost out the door already. Right. And so, I mean, yeah. if you come in that's that's, you know, that's part of why they advised Biden never to say that he was considering only running for one term, even if that was true at one point. Right. Because he would be a lame duck from the moment he got in. And right. that makes your agenda so much harder to get past. Right. So interesting, uh, interesting stuff to 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 bring up and consider. Um, and that's good that people are thinking about ways to potentially reform the system and also see that. What we do isn't ideal. I mean, you know, I and mean, right. no perfect solution, but there are certainly problems, I think, with yes, yeah. as we've seen, right? Case in point today, Court of Appeals. There are problems with our system. Right. And someone brought up in here that uh saying that it could be worse, um, using the example that in California Diane Feinstein was simply replaced by Newsom's choice, which is an entirely partisan choice. Right. So, so the US Senate seat, you see that the governor would just put someone in. Right. So, I mean, if the same system was at work here, like, you know, at least here, even though the parties are choosing it, there's still some sort of a choice for the public. Yeah. And also there was something, I don't know if you saw, Kathy Hochul met with Tom Swazi, which was a Democrat's choice. But the interesting right. thing about this is that Tom Swazi ran against Kathy Hochul and had some very nasty things to say when he was running for governor against her. And mm. so, I was reading and thinking, wow, they're not really separating the politics from the act of governing here because this meeting was very transparently about Tom Swazi sitting with the governor and saying, I'm sorry, I think he did apologize, but basically putting that behind them, right? That nasty campaign right. behind them and still being able to get her support. And I guess it's a credit to her that she was still able to support him after he attacked her the way he did. But it also... I think underscores the the politics of this all because that was a political campaign for governor that should be separate from the work of being governor and should it even be a consideration that as the governor you're going to uh call special election i, I guess the difference is that she's not picking the candidates although you would right. think that she probably does have influence over that decision but she is endorsing him I and mean, we that that's what came out of all this that the governor is endorsing right. tom swazi for the seat um it's just kind of interesting to me that it's this is a very political discussion right but right. at the same time the governor has an official role to play you know but i guess she gets away with that because she's not uh she's not officially choosing tom swazi as an because that would be different imagine if if she, right. as the governor, was choosing, like in the, in the case of a U.S. Senate seat, choosing the right. person, but then also having to say, well, I met with them and they apologized to the, for the nasty remarks during the campaign, because that's a campaign. That should be different from the act of choosing the best person for the job. Um, I, I'd say yes, 
Um, at the same time, I, it also does reveal their character of how they behave during the campaign. Sure, sure. But yeah. that's assuming that they were wrong in their assertion. Well, I don't know how nasty he was and, and what he he did if it was, you know, if, you know. And so. I guess from the from the governor's perspective, he would be wrong if he was saying bad things about it. You know, I'm trying to admit that those are accurate characterizations. So maybe <laughs> right. from, her, from her perspective, it does reflect on his character, right? To, to say things that were so blatantly untrue about him. Right. You know, so. It's, it's, it, it is interesting, though, right? And, it, and that goes back to the whole, you know, this is politics and you can't take politics out of politics, certainly. So, but you've got people who are in office trying to do it and tasked with doing the job on behalf of the people. And they're not supposed to mix the overt political considerations in with the job of the people, serving the people, right? Right. For example, when you're in your office, literally, when you're in your office in government, you're not even allowed to talk about politics, campaigns, they'll, you know, they'll tell you, you want to talk about the next election, you leave, you go outside, you leave right. the premises. You don't do that right. on government grounds because this is supposed to be about serving the people. But right. Democrats and Republicans and political considerations abound. That's, you know, you, you can't divorce it entirely. So, it, it, you know, it kind of seemed like a difficult distinction or line to draw. But right. And we, and we see that I think it's there. I think we see that most evidently with the presidential elections uh, and because you have these this field of people and sometimes, you know, you got uh, your, your senators and congressmen and they they're running or they have people that that talk about whoever gets in. But once they get in the office, if they win and become the president and you've got to work with the people that have probably been tearing you down for the past couple of couple of years oh, yeah. because they represent people even right. if you don't like them personally what they did but you still have a duty to the people they that represent happens. yeah absolutely but that happens at the local level also i deal with sure. that right sure. when there are people let's say they run a civic group or right some club or something like that they represent maybe 100 people maybe 500 people whatever in howard beach that you don't have a lot of civic. i mean you've got you've got a few i don't want to say that there, you know there's, there's only one but uh it, it's not like the Rockaways, right? In the Rockaways, there's a ton of meetings everywhere. Um, it's great. It's a very civilly active area. In a place like Howard Beach, you don't get as many of these meetings. And so you have to sometimes work with people who, in a campaign, were going against you and maybe saying nasty things about you, maybe lying about you outright. But if they're uh, running a meeting and there are hundreds of people or whatever number of people from the community who show up at their meeting, you have to work with them if you want to get that information to those people, right? You can't just write them off. If you write the person off, well, now you're shutting off all those innocent people who are just right. trying to get information from from the community leaders on what's going on in the area, right? And you mm -hmm. can't do that. So you do have to sometimes, yeah. you know, we may have to... differences, but this is, a, this is bigger than, than us. This is about the people we're trying to serve here. It should be right, and and it's regardless of of that one person. Those people deserve that representation. They deserve, uh, you know, that information or or engagement or whatnot. So it can be, yeah. It's 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 very uh, interesting. Um, one one more point off a of comment here, and I figured you might want to comment on this because of what happens in New York. Um, this person said, this is another reason, talking about the, the poll, this is another reason for ranked choice voting and or instant runoffs, one-step primary in election when time is of the essence. 
So I figured you might want to comment on that because so they're the saying, I guess they don't want to do the special election where the party picks a candidate and go one on one. They want to basically open it up to everyone, but have yeah. ranked choice. And that could be a way of dealing with that issue that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Of when you have the nonpartisan election, the vote gets split. The ranked right. choice voting attempts to mitigate the effect of votes being split, right? right. Because let's say you had five Democrats and one Republican, like we said in the hypothetical, you know, if the Republican gets 40%, let's say, and, and 60% of the vote is split amongst those five Democrats under ranked choice, at least under the ranked choice that we have here in the city, you'd have to get 50% in order to win. And so that 40% wouldn't do it. And so then it, you, would, you would look at the other candidates and start reapportioning their votes based on their second choice. So what, what could end up happening is you could end up with those 60% of Democratic voters could, you know, maybe they wouldn't put that Republican in their rankings. So maybe uh, eventually you will go through the ballots and find that there's one of those Democrats that's favored amongst, you know, amongst most of those voters, which could overtake potentially that Republican under, under such a, a, a tabulation. So it's one way of looking at it. I do think it makes things a little more convoluted. Um, <laughs> and for all its, you know, its benefits, I think there are, downsides as well right. so i don't know if i personally favor that approach i think we have to see in new york city the first time because it's new even to new york city the first time we did it, it it was a headache and most people i talked to didn't quite get it um you know very smart people i'm not saying people like people who even are lawyers don't get it right <laughs> people even right. who study elections don't get it so you can expect for the average voter who again they don't pay attention as deeply as, as some of us it's it's like what are we doing what is this all all about you know you know with that said do they have to know how the winner is tabulated maybe not maybe you can just teach people how to rank people but then you're also asking people to do a lot more research and look into a lot more candidates and that might have an, uh, a negative effect as well i mean do most people look at every candidate in a race and and, and all of their platforms and, and rank them from favorable to least favorable Probably not. I don't think they do. I mean, it's hard enough to find one candidate that you like in the legend. Now you got to pick up the five. <laughs> right, right. It's like you, you pick the first one and just just go random with everyone else. Like, yeah, I've heard this name yeah. before. Yeah. I care about this name? You know, I, I don't know. People will say that it worked in New York, but you know, I was there at the Board of Elections. I was looking at the absentee votes, and when you would open the envelope, you would get to look at the ballots and all that kind of thing, and. At least around here, and again, it's new, so we'll see how this plays out. But at least around here, in this part of Queens, I don't think it was being used the way that some people expected that it might. Right? You didn't see every ballot have rankings one through five. You would see most people, I think, just, at least in the absentee votes that I saw, just pick one candidate, or sometimes they would pick a second, but usually it wasn't. Sometimes people would try to pick, you know, for all their choices, the same candidate, which of course you can't do, but. You know, it, it, it wasn't this clean. Everyone's going to rank their five candidates. That I think some people think it turns out being right. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be fair, it was the first time done. Maybe the second time around, it's or third time or fourth time. You know, people get the hang of it and get a little bit more accustomed to it. You know, it, it maybe it'll work a little bit smoother or a little bit more as intended. Right, right, and also, you know, and I think about this from a legal constitutional type perspective 
whatever happens to the person with the most votes wins. I mean, under ranked choice voting, you, what you're saying right. is that someone could lose, and, and that does happen sometimes. Now, right. most often not, right, to be fair, but it does happen where the person gets the most votes and still loses. Now, fundamentally, that's a bit of a problem for me. And I understand the rationale behind the right choice to say, well, maybe they had the most votes, but they still didn't represent the majority of the people, right? They still fell short of the 50% mark. And so when you start reapportioning, yeah. then maybe it better represents the will of, of more people. But again, you're now, you're now putting someone in office who got second choice votes. Right. So they were, okay, so they were the will of more people, but more people didn't want them to be the, the winner. They wanted them to be the second place person. You know what I mean? The person mm -hmm. who most people wanted to win didn't win. Yeah, and that would, oh, that would, wouldn't that just like eat you up if you got the most votes and you didn't win? Right. Like, what? Right. Yeah. Right. So I understand what it's trying to get at. I just don't really love the way it works, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. so. Well, I think we should get a, a poll for this week uh, before yes. we wrap up. Okay. Well, speaking of polls, I did want to say this. I did look at some of the comments on social media. People were talking, this relates to a discussion we had last week when we were talking about the presidential race that's coming up next year. And, you know, Andre was here and he had his concerns. One of the things that I wanted to mention, I thought this was an interesting comment and it was a good point. Someone said, when it comes to the polling, right, because sometimes the polling right now paints a scary picture for Democrats and for Joe Biden in particular, even though when you look at the election results over the past few years, they have been kinder to Democrats than the polls showed. One interesting comment that I read said that Generation Z doesn't answer the phone. That's it. That's my argument. And that's actually an interesting point that that's Period. one reason why the polls might be over sampling Republican support and Trump support at this point, because the young generation is less likely to participate in the polls. And so yeah. you may not be seeing them indicated in these results. That's why when the when the actual elections happen, Democrats are winning and you're seeing that the Republican policies on the whole nationwide are very unpopular, right? Roe v. Wade right. Has, has a lot to do with that. You see even in states like Kansas and then more red states, Democrats are getting these big victories and the polls aren't always showing that. But I think it, it's, I think at this point, people are People with cell phones, because we know polls over sample landlines as well. But even if they're going for cell phones, I think now younger people are just less likely to answer, period. They're going to vote, you know, more than they're, they'll answer the polls. And I think that plays into it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. Um, you know, they're, they're definitely not doing the phone thing and they're going to have a, a, an older demographic potentially um and maybe a specific demographic that is using right. those things right. you gonna even results? if you get yeah right even if they're like well in our poll we did speak to x number of young people maybe you're speaking to old souls who <laughs> still answer the phone maybe it's a different type of young person out there who's right, right. The phone, right and maybe their voting habits are different right so maybe those polls need to be a little bit more diversified in how they collect their data and instead of just be a phone poll, maybe they have to do other things that so they can reach uh, a diversified pool mm. of people more, more to get them more media. accurate. Right, because even texts, I think a lot of young people just aren't gonna answer it from a stranger, but maybe <laughs> social media stuff, but then it's, it's, it's harder to 
send them chat send send them like uh snapchat dms like hey what do you think (laughs) right that's what i'm saying it might have to be more social media but then it's harder i think to use that data in a useful way if you just hit people up on snapchat right right yeah it's it's you can't and then yeah but it just is that's where they're at it's so it's yeah but it's a good point i think it's a really good point so so yeah now i wanted to bring that in all right so we wanted to do a poll question for this week and this one is going to be inspired by the manhattan borough president let me see if i can pull up this article from city and state yes so here it is this is from manhattan borough president mark levine he's talking about ai and he's saying that new york city must lead boldly on ai this is an op-ed in city and state that he wrote um look i've always said that new york city needs to be a leader we think of ourselves as a leader but oftentimes when we look at the reality we're behind right we're behind on infrastructure behind on our transit and our wi-fi and all kinds of things so why should New York not be a leader on this? It should be, you know, will it be? We have to wait and see. Hopefully we can be. But the idea here is that the city should be doing more, and I guess starting to take steps to regulate AI and really get ahead of the curve on this. Mm-hmm. He outlines a few areas where he can see the city playing a role. And, uh, you know, we won't get into everything now, but. One of them I'll highlight here is he's talking about job training. And you know, I suppose the implication is the resources that are directed right by the city. And he's saying that we should be focusing on AI proof jobs. So there are jobs he is saying are likely to be rendered obsolete by AI. He names bookkeeping, call center agents, and legal assistants. Uh-oh. But he's saying that the priority should be on training New Yorkers for more, quote, AI proof careers like nursing, electricians, and social workers. So one area where he's, I guess, looking towards the future and how if there's a concern that AI can take people's jobs, well, let's make sure people are trained for jobs that AI won't be taking over anytime soon. Okay, that's part of it. But here is something that we wanted to focus on for the purpose of this poll, right? He's talking about elections, and I guess that's apropos considering our whole discussion tonight was on elections. So he's saying the New York City Campaign Finance Board should put in place rules that require all campaigns to clearly label image, video, and audio content generated using AI tools. Um, what do we think about that? I mean, we'll, we'll put that as the poll. My first question is, why is that so important to do? And is there a difference between using AI and other computer software in this context? I mean. If you're creating an image, does it matter if AI is helping you with that image versus Photoshop? Unless right. it's presented as a photograph and it isn't. I mean, I'm trying to understand really what that distinction is. Right. Uh, I, I, that, that's a good point. Like, you know, whether it's a, a doctored image by someone using Photoshop or some other tools or whether they created it with AI, if it's a doctored image, it's a doctored image. I, yeah. I think in this context, what we could do to separate at least some of it is that with AI, you can generate, um, say, for example, a vocal audio of someone saying anything you want them to say using their voice. Right. 
Uh, that sounds authentic, depending on how much time you put or training into it. Um, and the same goes with uh, video. Um, there are some programs or software services out there where you can basically, I could take you and and make you looking as you look, saying whatever I want you to say using your voice. Right. And you can see that being a slippery slope if you're a campaign you know, you put out a campaign ad of your opponent saying something crazy right. and everyone says, oh, wait a minute, they never said that. And then your defense is, well, this is just basically our depiction of what we think they would say or how they sound to us or the things that they might right. say if they get elected. Or, you know, what I mean, you could try to say that basically it's just an art piece of our depiction of their campaign. Right. It has the effect of fooling people, right? If they don't know that that's what it is, which I think what this is trying to get at, you have to clearly label that. Otherwise, people are prone to think, and let's be honest, if you did something like that, you would want people, I'm sure, to think it was real, right? So- oh, yeah, absolutely. They would They would definitely want that. And the thing, here's, a, here's what's even worse about it is that even if you label it, right, someone's going to take it, crop out the labeling. That's right. That's right. And put that up, and it's still going to live as if it was real for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Or even if the label is there, people will disregard that label, even, you know, even without right. doubt. They'll, they'll, they'll share it. They'll say, look what this person said. Can you believe it? And not ever right. attention to that little disclaimer on there. Right. So it's 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 going to it's going to be a very confusing future, um, especially in politics, because. So so then I wonder if labeling isn't the answer. Should it just be banned? Should that kind of good, practice be banned? And, and that gets into constitutional questions, First Amendment questions, right? It's gonna, you just right. probably do a whole course on that because right. we know that lying isn't against the law per se. I mean, there, right. there are times where lying can get you in trouble, like you lie on your taxes or something like that. But just, just the idea of lying, saying something that isn't true, even for a politician, isn't against the law. Not against the law. It did right. get Santos kicked out, but not against the law. Right. Some it, was, it was more than just lying, though. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. If you're committing fraud, that's a crime. And there are different yeah, things right. that, right, you can you can lie. And, and we know that not all speech is protected. Not all lies are protected, clearly. Right. Right. Defamation is one example, right? You can't lie about someone's libel. Right. To ruin their reputation. But, right. and, but this could be argued that something like that could ruin someone's reputation be, and that be. it's the purpose of creating it. That's what it's intended to do. Right. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Should there be restrictions in place on doing something clear? And it would have to be very clearly defined. You can't just say right. anything deceptive, I guess. Right. Unfortunately. Right. But, you know, maybe something like like that, that amounts to defamation because you're making the reasonable person think that they said something that they didn't say. Right. And, and so, and it brings to mind, it was, uh, my cousin had sent me a, a video earlier today and this was Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he was talking about, um, this hypothetical, like what if there was, uh, a, what was it? I think it was like a hundred billion square meters of the earth disappeared every minute or something like that, or every hour or something like that. Um, and is he was doing the math. He's like, well, you, you, how long would it take for the earth to disappear? And he went through this large mathematical calculation about how many trillions of, uh, kilograms of the earth weighs and how all this and that, and he breaks it all down and saying that it would still take like something like 300,000 years for the earth to completely disappear. And the meaning of that is that the earth is just so big. It's so massive, but it's still 
not as big as your mother. And so like that was the hook at the end, but it wasn't <laughs> him. This it was a Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay. But if you look at the video, there was something a little off. So it was clearly AI oh. that made this. So it sounded perfectly sounded like him, looked like him, but this was basically a yo mama joke. Right. Um using him. And so for a lot of people, it's going to be real. Like he actually said that. But it, it was clearly, it, if you look closely, there was something off about it. It was most likely AI. Right. So, but given his personality, it wouldn't be far-fetched to think he would right. do a joke like that. Yeah, so we need to be mindful of these things. I'm wondering, though, is it too far-reaching to say that all images, videos, and audio content generated with AI has to be labeled? All content? Is, is that too much? Or should it just be certain types of content? Or And is there even a way? I mean, because if you make it deceptive, then who decides that? Does it have to go to court? Does the campaign finance board decide if that was deceptive or not? I think that's the conversation that's being had all across the world right now on how to deal with how to deal with that. Because I think you, you could look at different ways. Like, for example, uh, you know, if you're using AI to help you draft sales sales copy, like copywritten sales copywriter type of jobs. Does that need to be disclosed? Uh, versus if you're using AI to uh, you know represent somebody's viewpoints or their their imagery, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're two different things here. But what if it's your own? I mean, what if you're not doing it as a political hit piece? What if you're right. doing it to enhance your own campaign? Um, you know, what if it's something that you've already done? You, you do right. a fire, but you want AI to make it better or, you know, touch it up or rewrite some of it or, you know, and there was, like I was saying earlier, there are so many programs besides AI that you could use to do that. Why are we requiring this disclaimer that AI was involved if it's something fairly innocuous like that? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think there's, it's, there's a discussion to be had there. Um, off rip, I would probably say, yeah, that's not necessary to be disclosed, but I would still leave the door open to to possibilities that I can't think of right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I would think, you know, for something innocuous like that, like helping you with your speech or helping you with whatever text contents of your flyer, the strategy for it. I don't see any problem with that. Um, but there are definitely some some uses that probably should be labeled. Definitely should be. Right, right. And I guess, you know, a scheme like this could intend to kind of just cast a wide net. So if you're labeling everything, then you're right. supposed to having campaigns try to argue that that doesn't fall into a certain category or what have you. Right. So yeah. it's an interesting discussion. So let's make the poll. We can revisit it next week. Yeah. So the question of the week is, should political campaigns be required to label multimedia content generated by AI as such? I think it's a good question. We'll see what people have to say about that, because uh, it's definitely one that's going to have to be dealt with. Um, and, we're, you know, so. Right, right. It's going to it's going to lead to more people, I think, just being distrustful of certainly really? politics, but just, just in general, media, of commercials, of anything they see, right? People are not gonna trust their own eyes and ears anymore when, not. right, we're overwhelmed, we're inundated with all this 
AI manipulation. Uh, you know, you turn on the TV and someone says something that it looks to you like they said, but then you find out that was AI that never actually said that. Right. Okay, that's like the boy who cries wolf in a sense. I mean, at a certain point, we're not going to believe anything anyone says. And then, right. then when you have things that actually are said, imagine that. Let's say a politician comes out and says the craziest thing and then gets criticized for it. Their supporters are going to say that was AI. That wasn't real. Right. And think about that being used as a, as a strategy. Like, imagine your candidate came out and did say something right. ridiculous right. and they're getting they're getting attacked for it. So what if their team then releases a bunch of fake ones that are made by AI and say, well, look, it's just a part of just like all of these others. Right. Right. And then and what ends up happening is the waters get muddied. Yes. Right? And so no one really knows. And people What's just, the truth. Right. Like, I don't know. It's uh, I see this. I see that. It could be this. Could be. And then there's really no consensus. There's no solution. There's no answer right. to it. It's just, yeah, I don't know. This stuff is crazy. Who the hell knows anymore? You know, yeah. that's the problem. And it's, it's going to get to the point where it's going to be, again, uh, we've reiterated it several times that this is the worst that the technology is ever going to be. It's only going to get better from here. Yeah. And so it's going to get to a point where some of it's going to be undetectable. It's going right. to, you know, right. right now you can you can run some writing through AI detection filters to see if it was written by AI, but those can't even reliably predict that if it was AI written or not. Yeah. So even those at this point can't tell completely. And so later on, you know, we're going to have issues. Someone said we're only about a year away from everybody on Earth being able to generate their own TV shows and movies through AI without having any actors needed or anything. You know, you just put in the script, you use software and it just spits out the video for you. I, I would not be surprised. We're getting we're getting there. So, yeah, I mean, there are fun possibilities. We think about music videos, all kinds of cool things to do with that. But I think it is important to get ahead of the curve and try to regulate it where needed. Right. Don't go overboard because we don't want overregulation, but figure out certainly uh, the, the dangers. Right. And right. What, what could we do to mitigate? And then, you know, if we want to go to the bottom line, I, I, would, I would I would go go on that point. Right. We talked about elections today for most of the show. And we said that really there are no perfect systems and there are certainly many proposals some work better than others some have more hiccups than others but we should be looking to reform the systems we have knowing that it's never going to be perfect but if we can make it a little bit better a little bit cleaner i think that has the effect of including more people in the process because they won't be as disenfranchised if it's easier to understand and it's cleaner and it's more trustworthy and it works better for more people, right? Again, better, not the best necessarily. We want to get towards the best, not perfect, certainly, but if we can make it better progressively, then uh, we're at least moving in the right direction. So let us strive. Completely agree. Completely agree with all of that. And for those who want to join us, uh, we are on social media uh, youtube at nuance show instagram as well as wherever podcasts are which are spotify apple music amazon wherever you do your podcast thing go in subscribe and check us out there so. you go as always we've got work to do thank you all for tuning in we'll catch you next time